Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Professor Pete Mandick. Pete is a professor of philosophy at William Patterson University. He's the author of the books Key Terms in Philosophy of Mind and This is Philosophy of Mind, an Introduction. He's also a co-author of the book Cognitive Science, an Introduction to the Mind and Brain. Pete really works in the intersection between philosophy of mind and cognitive science. All the stuff that I love in this intersection between philosophical questions and empirical questions. As I've said in the past, one of the best perks of my job is that I get to catch up with all of the philosophers and professors and amazing thinkers that have most inspired me over my academic career. So it really is a privilege to continue talking to these people. And Pete has been a central figure in my recent research, for sure. Pete and I had a lovely conversation, and I think I found a couple of the reasons why I really was drawn to his work in the first place. He has the feeling of being interested in everything. He wants a big everything sandwich, as he says. So often his work straddles many different subfields and many different media, since Pete also makes his own podcast called Spacetime Mind, and he makes a philosophical comic strip called Mind Chunks, which you can find at dailynouse.com. So it seems like Pete and I both have a love for big, ambitious questions, a big everything sandwich, and we also share a common view about the work that philosophy should be doing. We start by talking about Pete's background, his upbringing as a child with philosophical questions, which is something that definitely resonated with me. We talk about meta-philosophy, the roles of empirical work versus pure philosophy. We talk about the PR problems of academics and intellectuals, and the politics and economics of being an intellectual. Then we move on to talk about topics in the philosophy of perception, like human spatial navigation, egocentricity and allocentricity, indexicals in language, words like me and here, and we end by discussing the question of realism. We talk about the physical versus the mental, and we talk about the wide range of conceptions that human beings have, all the way from our scientific conception of hydrogen to our cultural conception of what it means to be a hipster. We talk about totalizing projects, you know, the the possibility of having unified and global knowledge. And on the flip side, we talk about modesty, whether such a global knowledge of the world is ever possible, and whether we're stuck with more of a patchwork of conceptions and knowledge. It was a great conversation. It really felt like a meeting of the minds. And I felt like I was meeting one of my philosophical heroes from the last couple of years. So it was a, a real privilege that Pete sat down to talk to me. So without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Pete Mandick. I am very excited to be here today with Professor Pete Mandick. So Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And now, so I told you when I first reached out that I'm kind of a big fan. You know, I've been reading your work fairly intensely for the past year or so. And, you know, it was one of your papers in particular that became a central inspiration for this nine month research project on perception, representation, metaphysics. And that paper was Selective Representing and World Making, which you co-authored with Andy Clark. Um, but this is all to say, you know, that you've shaped my thinking and you've been a source of influence for my research interests. So I'm thrilled to have you on. And I wanted the audience to know that you're an esteemed guest on the podcast. 
Well, I feel esteemed. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Uh, so enough about me. I want to hear more about your backstory. So you're a professor at William Patterson University in New Jersey, and you've been teaching there for a long time, I believe. Yes. So maybe tell us about, you know, some of the courses you teach and, you know, how your research interests have changed over the course of your career and kind of wh- where you're at at the moment. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned that Andy Clark uh, co-authored paper from uh, a million years ago. I think that got published in the early 2000s, and it was written while I was in grad school at the PNP program, the Philosophy Neuroscience Psychology program in uh, at Washington University in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and I was there during what I, I think of as like the golden age of that program. In, the, in its early days, there uh, Andy Clark, uh, Bill Bechtel, um, Jesse Prince, they were all there while I was there. And they have this uh, postdoc program. So there's always fantastic postdocs there. Dave Chalmers was just leaving as I was starting uh, the graduate program there in 1995. And then while I was there, postdocs included like Rick Rush, who I've uh, been close with ever since, uh, Brian Keeley, Irene Applebaum was a postdoc at the time there too. I was in grad school there from 95 to 2000, and, and at that time is when I co-authored the paper with Andy. Uh, and the way that worked, that paper came about is uh, Tony Shimero, uh, Camaro, who I haven't, I hadn't yet met at the time. He had published this paper trying to link that inactivism stuff that Andy Clark is associated with, with a kind of anti-realism. And I had, uh, I've always had an interest in the realism, anti-realism debates, especially you know, going back to like uh, Hillary Putnam, um, reason, truth, and history sorts of arguments about internal realism versus external realism. So I had this idea and I said, Andy, you want on board? I mean, it's kind of your idea that I'm defending here. And yeah, so that's how that, that came about. And that very much was like central to my, my, a lot of my interests. Like I was very interested in objectivity versus subjectivity and, and started off on that as an undergraduate super uh, captured by the consciousness problem as posed by Nagel in the famous, what is it like to be a bat mm-hmm. uh, paper? Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so I've always been interested in like this philosophy of mind and philosophy of, of consciousness stuff is, I mean, like seriously, it sounds weird, but like ever since I was a little kid, I basically was a kind of physicalist. I had it all figured out that, you know, cause I had, as a, as a little kid was exposed to like Isaac Asimov and a few other popularizers of, of contemporary physics. My dad would bring these popular science books home from the library and, and talk about them with the family. And I was really hooked on that stuff. And I, at a super young age, decided that there ought to be some like equation, some single equation that was a priori. I didn't know the terminology to express this idea, but there ought to be something mathematical or logical that was a priori from which you could derive everything, including like physical law. And then once you had the physical law, then you could get everything else. So it was this kind of like rationalist, physicalist monism that I had figured out in, you know, little kid style by age seven or something. And that's kind of been my guiding uh, philosophy, philosophical view ever since. And I didn't know that really if I wanted to pursue that stuff, that mostly that meant going into philosophy. I had no idea that that's what that entailed. I just thought it was weird stuff that's cool and hmm. about robots and, and the mind and brains and computers. And it just seems so neat. 
Um, but it took a long time to figure out like, yes, philosophy. This is philosophy. That's, you know, there's a name for this. <laughs> yeah. Part of my deal was, I, you know, my not only did my family had gone to college, so they, I couldn't. It's not like I had a dad who was a professor who could say, like, yes, you're interested in analytic philosophy. That's what you need to study and you'll get a Ph.D. <laughs> and then go on from there. I had no idea. My junior year of uh, undergraduate, I was at the University of Illinois at the same time. Kathleen Akins was a professor there and I took a philosophy of mind class from her. And that's when I decided, like, I want to be her. I want to I'm a philosopher of mind. That's what I want to do. Um, and I've been kind of like a laser focus ever since then. Akins was a student of the Churchlands, like way back in um, Manitoba. I forgot where she did her undergraduate, but mm. the, it was wherever the Churchlands were in Canada before they went to San Diego. So I was getting a big dose of this Churchland, Akins style brain philosophy, and uh, that seemed really, really terrific. So, um, yeah, that's why I sought out the PNP program because I, you know, was kind of aware of Andy Clark's microcognition book. I think at the time, microcognition and possibly associative engines were the only Andy Clark books in existence. So microcognition was very much about connectionism, and I just thought like, oh, that's got to be the right answer mm-hmm. to all these interesting things. But that just seemed to me like the right answer and the way to go. So I was super attracted to the PNP program and really hit it off with the people there. There's a kind of personality that was common to the to the students, the faculty members, um, it was super attractive, super inviting, interesting mix of like uh, serious, seriousness and playfulness. Everyone, um, you know, if you think of uh, someone like Andy Clark or, or Jesse Prince or, or, you know, Dave Chalmers, they all have this like kind of rock and roll vibe to them. They're, you know, I don't know if Chalmers still wears his black leather jacket everywhere all the time, <laughs> but that was very much his shtick. For a really long time, that was really attractive to, to me. The idea of like that we're doing scholarship, but at the same time, there's a similar vibe to just go into someone's garage with a bunch of beers and guitars. Like it had that kind of like, like feeling. philosophy. Yeah, yeah, it had that feeling to it. Um, so really, hit, I really hit it off in grad school with Andy Clark and in uh, that kind of style of being, which was like rock and roll philosophy and. Uh, <laughs> You, that shows up in his writing style, you know, like reading Andy Clark is super fun. At least I think so. And uh, that's the background behind it. There was just this cool, collaborative, uh, almost punk rock f- feel um, to to scholarship. And I, I just I clicked with that. It really um, kind of matched my my ideal, my half formed ideal of the way it all should all go. Well, it's amazing to hear the backstory with all the networks because, you know, meeting people like Clark and Chalmers and then Aikens who came from this Churchland lineage, like it's, there's a real kind of ecosystem of people interacting with each other. And this is kind of how knowledge and ideas take shape. It's incredible to think of yes. the, the human side of these things. Uh, and it's funny, I, I loved your story of being an, an inquisitive kid. I think mine is very similar. I, I didn't have a theory of everything at a, as a seven-year-old, unlike you, but I did. I was the kid who like asked my mom, how do we know this isn't a dream? Which, you know, is a terribly pedantic Descartes trope, but I didn't know it at the time as a five-year-old. So in my head, it was an original question. Uh, But these are the questions, you know, and then even as a a 17-year-old, I'd have go for these walks with my good friend and we'd talk about life in the world. And we had no idea there was a name for this 
for this way of thinking, for this discipline. Right. And it w- again, it was a teacher in high school who, who lent me Sophie's World originally and all their philosophy books and kind of showed me that this was a, a discipline that you can follow. And it's, it's a way of thinking that you, you can you can pursue. Uh, and then you, you start to form the idea that philosophy is this yeah, kind of way of approaching problems, which is very attractive. And I should mention, you know, before we move away from your backstory, your other outlets, because you also have a podcast called Space Time Mind yes. uh, with Professor Richard Brown. And I went back and listened to those episodes. I found them very enjoyable. Thank you. Uh, you got into some very technical disagreements. It's quite high level stuff, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with original music as well. So that's something that I have in common from this podcast. So that was that was lovely. Thank you. And uh, you're also a cartoonist. So you're, you're making comics for the Daily Nouse. Yes. Um, so I, I think... It, it was great to see that I think it's fair to say you find philosophy fun and, you know, you're, you've several outlets outside academia and you're bringing philosophy to the masses, I, I suppose. I'm, tr- I'm trying. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that informs my sensibility is a, a kind of uh, I, I feel like an outsider. In, in a, and I'm sure a lot of people who are first generation college students that become academics have this feeling of like, uh, we kind of snuck in here and, and we feel a little guilty about it. We, maybe we don't belong here with the ruling elite. And, you know, I mean, many people in academia, they have parents that were professors and and it, maybe they're even third generation academics. That's that's a thing that happens. And, um, you know, so that that's part of it is I kind of feel like uh, I kind of can't quite believe it. And um, also a lot of the unspoken norms of academia just seemed to me silly and optional. So in some ways I'm this crude guy that just like wandered in because he heard there were donuts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so that's part of it is this feeling of being an outsider. Um, uh, but also like part of what drove me into philosophy in the first place is this feeling of being interested in everything and not knowing how best to pursue that. Um, you know, so in a lot of ways, I start off early, early, early on. I start off from science fiction and, uh, and just kind of like this interest in, in, uh, scientific nonfiction that goes along with that and, and not really focusing on any particular discipline. Like, oh, I'm only interested in chemistry or I'm only interested in physics. I was interested in all sorts of stuff, like anything that seems sciencey, uh, anything that would have been talked about by Carl Sagan in his cosmos tv series where you know some of it is biology some of it is cosmology some of it is mathematics some of it is just outright philosophy so i was really motivated by this kind of like uh feeling of wanting to get my head around everything but anyway yeah so like i'm interested in everything and sometimes i just have to discipline myself because i am an academic and so i have to like think about well what part of this is philosophical what makes it philosophical but mostly I just don't care. I just, there's certain things that are interesting. Some of it is scientific, some of it is art. Some of it is just like this aesthetic. It's, oh, that just looks really cool. <laughs> that's, whoa, that's a cool, like, that's cool. Um, which is an aesthetic judgment. The appreciation of something is cool. Um, so part of it is, is the arts, part of it is science, part of it is philosophy. Uh, on some level, I kind of don't care. I'm just interested in a whole bunch of things. Comic books, science fiction, robots, consciousness the end of meaning the the death of you know human happiness all these like big big topics um i I think i accidentally become a popularizer or get into popular philosophy 
not so much that I've decided like, yeah, well, we need philosophy needs a popular arm and not just the purely academic theoretical arm. It's more like I'm already doing that. I'm already just interested in everything, a big everything sandwich. Um, and it just so happens that, well, when you try to do everything all at once, it looks like a podcast or it looks like a comic strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you get. And it's funny, you're really, you're justifying the reasons why I've been drawn to your work, because I also have this, I'm drawn to big picture questions. And it's actually, it's been the main, you know, point of feedback from my supervisor at the moment is kind of, great, start with the big picture and then do the detailed stuff as well, because you also need to get into that. Right. And I'm also drawn to popularizing. I mean, this podcast is a good example, but you know, I, I, I've always thought that philosophy is very fun and relevant and should be brought to people. So yeah, it, it's it's great to hear you saying all these things. Um, and let's jump into your work because I know we have so much to talk about. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it's funny you're saying you're interested in everything because looking at your your list of publications, it's it's basically like a laundry list of things that interest me in philosophy. So <laughs> my challenge here is to kind of keep us on track and to guide the listener at a reasonable pace through the conversation. Um, so I think we should start with maybe some meta philosophy. All right. This is one of the, the main things. I like to get meta where possible. Awesome. One of the main things in your work, of course, is the strong links between philosophy and cognitive science, especially neuroscience. And you've already mentioned the Churchlands, you know, Patricia Churchland with Neurophilosophy, the 1986 book. Um, you know, and so this is a field which explicitly draws on results from neuroscience to solve philosophical puzzles. And I probably sound like a broken record to my listeners because this, since the very first episode of this podcast, I've been talking about how important it is to make links to, uh, to empirical work. If we're going to solve problems, you know, about perception, consciousness, action, you know, these these questions are amenable to empirical research and they're, they're no longer, you know, the armchair method doesn't cut it anymore. So I kind of want to talk to you about this project of making links to empirical work. You know, how important do you think it is? And is it now becoming mainstream or is there still kind of resistance from more traditional philosophers who would like to employ the armchair method? Yeah, th- there's a lot of great uh, ideas and questions in there. Um, I think about, about the very last part about the, the mainstream I do think it is mainstream at this point. There are um, a lot of a lot of people who um, just have this enormous like ability to do uh, a, a real empirical work, even though they are trained as philosophers. That is, you know, just off the top of my head, uh, people like Philippe de Brigard, um, Colin Klein, Gavin Gazeldere. Or, you know, some like older generation people, you think of like someone like Ned Block, like you, you start talking about scientific experiments or neuroscience with Ned Block and he can hold his own with any other scientist. He knows it inside and out, uh, but also he's like an incredible philosopher, too. So I think that that is that has become mainstream. There may have been a time several decades ago where you're always explaining that what I'm doing is neurophilosophy and I'm presupposing this Quinean continuity between the empirical and the analytical or I'm a natural. You always had to explain I'm a naturalist. Now I feel like there's so many people just doing that. You just, you just go to their conference. You don't have to explain or justify anything. We're all neurophilosophers here. There's several academic societies and with conferences and, and publications that are just about the, um, the interdisciplinary study of the mind where you've got philosophy and the empirical disciplines interacting. So I think that's become mainstream. Um, there's still some standing metaphilosophical problems in that, 
in that part of the woods that I'm interested in. You know, I, in many ways, am, am attracted to a kind of like old school armchair a priori. Let's just think that let's just think real hard about this. Um, like think really, really carefully what you're committed to by describing this. Uh, I don't know, whatever phenomenon, describing it relationally or trying to describe this in a purely phenomenological way. What, what, like, sometimes I think what we need is to just sit and do old school conceptual analysis. Um, and often uh, I find myself reacting to people like, for example, Akins, who I admire greatly. She's a friend of mine. But um, often when I read her work, I feel like she's gone too far in that Dennett direction. It's kind of hard to see how. To, to bring it back home to philosophy and, and um, but then there's this other worry um, and I forgot the scientist that said this but I was at a conference that Kathleen Akins was uh, one of the main organizers for it was specifically about human color vision and had philosophers and, and uh, psychologists and neuroscientists and one of the scientists there said in response to a philosopher pushing for further clarification about something that um I forgot how he put it, but he said something like, you need your concepts to be sloppy. It's good as a scientist to have kind of ill-defined concepts. It's good to be open and lead, and go in the direction that the empirical evidence points you. That that um, if you just get super hyper-focused on like, you know, taking a word like consciousness, for example, or taking a word like perceive and really trying to make it all work out and like, well, what would you say? What what would you say if you were in a darkened room and then a single photon went in your eye and, and, and you saw a spot of color? Did you, did you see the photon? Like you could go into the philosophy room and just get super hung up on trying to answer that question just by consulting our intuitions about linguistic usage. You could try to do that. And what you would wind up at at the end of the day is this like sealed package that you can't really get out of and you're locked in to a bunch of decisions that you made and that's closing you off from maybe some actual real progress. But I think there's a real interesting problem there. Like how much, uh, how much can you just get out of the armchair and, and, and let, the, let the data guide you? There's a point at which where, you know, there's too much of data the data by itself doesn't tell you anything at all. And so you need some theorizing. Where does the theory come from? And how do you know if you're coming out with good theory versus bad theory? Um, I really personally do like to go back to the philosophers for that. Um, but like which philosophers and how philosophical do you get? That's like the, the constant struggle. Um, so I, you know, the version of the problem I'm always thinking of is like, you know, how do you, how do you do interdisciplinary work in a way that respects both sides, that isn't just uh, being a cheerleader for empirical science um, or, or thinking somehow mystically that scientists are going to figure it all out just by doing experiments? Like, that's never actually happened ever. <laughs> um, you know, some of the greatest advances of, in science have been these sorts of like Einstein moments where it was just some real serious thinking. And uh, I really admire that, that kind of intellectual work. Places where there's problems to be solved that are they're grounded in the empirical, but nonetheless, they're, they're going to be solved by some real serious thinking. There are these questions, they're big questions, and what is really needed is what is recognizably philosophical work. 
often when you read Pat Churchland, you get this feeling like the scientists are just going to solve everything. We just need more science and the philosophical problems will go away. I love, I love Pat Churchland. I love her work. I think she's been really important, but I, I do, I do think she, I, I prefer if I had to choose, I would go with Chalmers, <laughs> even though I agree with more of Pat Churchland's conclusions than David Chalmers conclusions. I like David Chalmers method and general like style of approaching this big question of, you know, how much philosophy and how much science do you dedicate your, your thinking to and your writing to? It's a great question. And honestly, that was, that was the, the main puzzle I talked about in the very first episode of this podcast. So you hit, hit your finger on the metaphilosophical problem. And I kind of, in, in that first episode, I talked a lot about, well, one crude view of science is the kind of shut up and calculate. So that's the view that, you know, the, the data says nothing, the data is silent. And on the other hand, you have the, the crude view of armchair philosophy, which is kind of, you know, theorizing only, and it doesn't even look at the data, it just goes off on the, the linguistic intuitions. And for me, philosophy now, empirical philosophy or naturalized philosophy, you know, starts with the with the data and does some extrapolation, as I say. So it's a mixture of the the kind of the postulation and the empirical side of things. And in, in reality, science also has a mixture. So science also involves a bit of the empirical side more of the empirical side with a little bit added on of the theorizing at the end because they're entitled to a bit of extrapolation but they have to be a bit more mature and you know cautious in in their in their extrapolations and then philosophers i think have a, just a different balance we need to start by looking to the data but then we go a lot further because we're tracing the dotted line outwards towards proposed theories and i think that you know the empirical methods and tools are catching up so with consciousness we're making claims that you know they're becoming testable as time goes on right. but yeah we we still we're still relying more heavily on the traditional philosophical methods of you know careful linguistic analysis as if the problem wasn't hard enough one thing that that's making this uh, an extra difficult problem is that um, we're not just we're not just arguing about you know how to best find the truth or how to best acquire understanding but we also have this um, pr problem we as intellectuals, whether we're philosophers or scientists or some mixture, we also have to be thinking about the, you know, how are academics going to eat and how are we going to stay out of jail? There's economic and political problems that academics face all around the world. And, um, you know, in the U.S., there's declining state support for higher education. Um, and more and more, we're dependent on um, kind of capitalistic uh model of attracting students and, and collecting tuition from them. And, and then that's plugged into all sorts of political uh, issues. You know, to what degree should the states be supporting higher education? And, and how does that benefit the taxpayers? How does that benefit the students? You know, so there's this PR problem that intellectuals face, like how to, how to justify to the rest of the society that we continue to exist in the way that we exist. Journal articles isn't going to do it. The average taxpayer isn't reading any any of my journal articles, but they they might be influenced more by maybe a podcast or something like that, mm-hmm. or you know uh, the sorts of books that are that get picked up by trade publishers instead of strictly academic publishing. So we you know we need to be thinking about our own existence as not just you know well are we getting to the truth or are we getting to understanding? We also have to think about how we're going to keep food on the table. You know, how we're going to present ourselves to the rest of society so they don't just decide, like, 
either we're irrelevant and so stop paying us or that we're outright dangerous and so put us in jail because we're teaching critical race theory or whatever dangerous thing that the that the politicians are upset about right um i had a i had a professor who uh back when i was like a freshman in in college he had previously had some teaching experience in mexico in the 70s he left mexico because they were putting academics in jail like it was a if you wanted to keep being an academic and you wanted to stay out of jail in the 70s mexico was not a good a good choice so that's why he came to the states you know that's that's very real like you know was it the University of Budapest had a like pick up and leave? They're in Austria now or something because of the government and I mean you know so those are very real concerns mm-hmm. on top of this. So part of this like meta philosophical question of you know how much do you want to just immerse yourself into the jargon and problem structures of so called traditional philosophy and how much do you want to reach out across the aisle and and put things in an idiom that a scientist or even a layperson could understand. Some of this is about like, well, what's the best way to understand reality? But some of this is about like, well, what's just the best way to present your discipline to the rest of the world so that you don't get laid off so that you're not, you know, shown the door. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it, too. And again, back to like someone like Dennett, I think Dennett has done a great job of making their their written work accessible, not only to other academics besides philosophers, but in a real way, speaking to a lay audience in a way that's that's clear and it's entertaining and so anyway i just wanted to add that wrinkle that the, the part of this is a pr thing it's not just simply about the quest for truth yeah and the politics come into it always i mean in my current building i'm with the the history and philosophy of science group and we're in the science faculty and science building and not in the humanities building, which is wonderful when it comes to funding. Yes. So politics and everything, it, it always comes back at the end of the day. Yes, yes. Politics and, and economics. Okay, so let's leave the meta sphere and come down to the ground level a bit with some substantive philosophy. And I'd like to talk about the terms egocentric and allocentric, because you've written about these uh, terms in a couple of papers, uh, and your PhD dissertation had the very intriguing title, Objective Subjectivity, Allocentric and Egocentric Representations in Thought and Experience. And I love these terms, allocentric and egocentric. I think it's a really useful way to reframe the debates about perception, subjectivity, realism, and this is a big part of my current research project. Um, so let's start just by defining, you know, egocentric and allocentric for our listeners. So, you know, we don't mean egocentric in the sense of being selfish or morally self-centered. Instead, egocentric and allocentric are technical terms, you know, borrowed from the neuroscience literature. And egocentric refers to a self-centered reference frame. It's it's a map of the environment with me as the point of origin. So, you know, at the, I'm at the center of the reference frame. It's egocentric. And I can describe, you know, other objects in relation to me. Like the door is four meters to my right. The window is three meters to my left. And then by contrast, allocentric refers to an other-centered reference frame. So it's a map with some other point of origin, you know, whether it's world-centered or object-centered. So I might say the door is seven meters from the window, and there's no reference to me in that description. So that's a, a purely objective, allocentric description of relations. So we have egocentric as being self-centered, and allocentric as being other-centered. So would you like to add anything to that definition, or would you amend anything? 
Yeah, so um, part of it, it, it's very tempting to say that the centering is about what's represented mm-hmm. or what's referred to. So the egocentric, you're representing yourself and uh, you might be representing things other than yourself by reference to yourself. So like five feet to my left, um, I'm representing the location of something relative to myself. But if I said something was located uh, 20 feet south of the of the Chrysler building, I didn't doesn't look like I've referred to myself or represented myself. So that gets called allocentric. Um, however, there are these weird cases where um, it looks like you're representing yourself, but in an allocentric way and vice versa. Possibly you might be able to have egocentric representations of nothing, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, so I don't think it's enough to really mention what's represented or what's referred to. You have to say something about how it's represented mm-hmm. or, or how it's referred to. And then things start to get philosophical if they haven't already. Um, so one, one kind of way of thinking about this is by reference to a contrast in linguistic representation between, on the one hand, indexical or demonstrative representations, and on, a, on another, um, what we might call purely descriptive or predicative uh, representations. So I could I could represent myself using like pronouns and stuff. Uh, like I'm me. I have twins, and I often have to ask them, "Who are you?" And they will answer me by saying, "I'm me." But that's not good enough. So I'll say things like, "What's your sister's name?" And that will trick them to give me the information I need. Anyway, um, so if I say Pete Mandic went to the store, you know, or Richard Nixon used to refer to himself as Richard Nixon, uh, that's not indexical. Um, that's like a non-indexical or non-demonstrative way of of referring to yourself. Where if I say I went to the store using pronouns or or uh, he's that guy, um, that's the same guy again. Um, that that would that would be more like egocentric. So the way, um, <laughs> and then now like that opens up the problem. Well, what is the difference in the representations? If it, if the difference can't be fully reduced to what's represented, you need to say something about how it's represented. And, and my views on this are not as so solid. One thing I, w- I was tempted at back when I was writing about this stuff in the late '90s and early uh, 2000s is to think that the allocentric stuff, um, what really mattered there for the the mode of representation, was that you had this like what Gareth Evans calls generality, or what in like the the literature surrounding Fodor stuff about language of thought gets called um, systematicity that you have um, these representations that are can be redeployed across all sorts of different contexts where there's these very specific sorts of contexts that uh, that egocentric representations can be used in. So for example, you know you think of the way uh, a gas a gas gauge in a in an automobile represents, it doesn't say, it doesn't like say, you know, the fuel in vehicle number 1782 uh, is, is, is low. It, it just says something like this, this car is low on gas, right? Mm-hmm. Or just, you know, I mean, it, it's just a needle pointing a little closer to the, the picture of the gas pump or whatever. But um, 
it's representing in this kind of indexical way, this pointing way. It can only represent this vehicle because it's only installed in this vehicle. It couldn't represent any arbitrarily selected vehicle. But if I use a linguistic scheme, if I use like vehicle identification numbers to, to represent that particular vehicle, I am able to represent it in a way that abstracts from that particular particular context of use of the gas gauge of that particular vehicle, and now we're getting more into allocentric territory. So part of what I think of as the egocentric allocentric distinction is not simply a distinction about like whether you're representing yourself versus representing things other than yourself, but more about whether you could represent things in this like uh, representational scheme that is has a high degree of generality or systematicity where you, regardless of where you are and regardless of who you are, you're able to represent the Eiffel Tower or whatever versus these more primitive um, representations where it's just like pointing or detecting, like you put the thermometer in the cup of coffee and it's representing the temperature of that cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. It can't just represent temperature in general or temperature of any arbitrarily selected coffee cup uh, or temp the temperature of all coffee cups, right? So it's it's very limited and context bound and because it's less linguistic uh, and it's more of just this like primitive pointing or detecting sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's egocentric versus allocentric. Yeah, that's great. And now this leads us very nicely into the next kind of question I was thinking about. So how much allocentricity can humans achieve? So, you know, can we can we get outside of our indexicality and actually represent the world outside of our own perspective? And this is a question that you ask in one of your papers, The Neural Accomplishment of Objectivity. I think a good metaphor here is Jakob von Uxkel has a metaphor of the soap bubble of every organism. So von Uxkel is kind of an anti-realist. He thinks that every organism is trapped within their own representational world. And he says, this is one of his quotes, uh, we may therefore picture all the animals around us, be they beetles, flies, mosquitoes or dragonflies that people in the meadow, enclosed within soap bubbles, which confine their visual space and contain all that's visible to them. So someone like von Uxkel wants to say it's soap bubbles all the way down, it's egocentricity and subjectivism all the way down. So there's no world outside of soap bubbles. And I think that's a good challenge. Do we have to say, you know, can we pierce the soap bubble? Can we abstract away from ourselves, step outside of ourselves and achieve some kind of allocentricity in perception? So what do you think about this challenge and kind of what's at stake here? Yeah, I think it's an important challenge and I think we can rise to it. And the way I think we could rise to it is by recognizing the sorts of philosophical or metaphilosophical assumptions that are being made and even posing the problem in the first place. So as I read Van Uxkull in, in, in that uh, kind of Umwelt ontology, it seems to be presupposing empiricism of the like, you know, Humean, you got your simple ideas and your complex ideas, kind of like empiricistic picture. There's nothing in the understanding that isn't first in the senses. You get these ideas that come into the mind through the senses, and there are no ideas that aren't in one way or another gotten through the senses. Either you're sensing something or you're like get, taking ideas from what you've sensed and combining them. And so that leads you to this picture whereby, well, there's just, you just no way you can have anything access to anything outside of that. Like, how would you... How would you, on that model, represent 
for example, something being outside of your light cone? Or how would you represent something being infinite? You know, so anyway, like I'm I'm led to like early versions of these sorts of debates. And you take, for example, like Descartes has the, the Kiliagon argument against empiricism. I know the difference or I understand the difference between a circle and a thousand sided polygon, but it doesn't seem like I can imagine the difference. Whatever I imagine, I run into the same sort of problem that I run into with perception. I don't really perceive the difference. If I were to try to perceive a kiligon, it would be indistinguishable to me, perceptually, from a circle. So, plausibly, we have some kind of grasp of things aside from this really coarse empiricist picture of you get things in through the senses. There's this more uh, rationalistic sorts of representational scheme. Maybe it's a language of thought. Maybe it's some some something that we could spell out in terms of connectionism, but you have representations that are combinable in, in, in these ways that allow you to come up with abstract representations. You could represent things that you could never sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to need a story about how these representations work. How, how do they come to have any kind of meaning at all if it isn't through this kind of like coarse indicator semantic sort of way where... This represents temperature because temperature causes the detector to trigger these representations, right? So, like, you're going to need a different story about how representation works. But it doesn't take a whole lot of reflection to appreciate that the the gross empiricism that leads you to this just has to be wrong. I think Descartes basically knocked it out of the park. Kant helped drive the nails into the, into the coffin. That that... Humean level empiricism just isn't going to work. There's just too much that obviously we do represent that then you could get from this plain old vanilla style empiricism. Mm-hmm. Um, that, now I'm not going to endorse like some full blown Platonism, whereby well obviously there's this realm of non sensory, non physical, perfect forms that we grasp magically. I'm not going to. I don't want to go. At least I don't want to wind up there. But uh, yeah, so I'm inclined to think the Vonuk school problem is a serious problem, but it's probably solved by recognizing how much of it is an optional empiricism. Mm -hmm. You give up the empiricism, then you can solve that problem. And the great thing is there's actually more empirical support now from neuroscience, for instance, that shows evidence that we do employ at least allocentric strategies in navigation, or that we at least employ a mixture of egocentric and allocentric strategies. So I think one of the main questions in that paper that you wrote about uh, the neural accomplishment of objectivity is, you know, can we accomplish this allocentricity in, in human perception and navigation? And there are now empirical studies, I think, which provide good evidence. So there's one uh, study by Daisy Ray Colombo and her team on human navigation and ageing. And, you know, they conclude that navigation involves both egocentric and allocentric strategies. And interestingly, preference between the strategies varies between different age groups. So older people prefer egocentric strategies, you know, statistically speaking. And the variance is actually between individuals more generally. So like there are people called allocentric learners who routinely prefer allocentric strategies to navigate. 
which is, I think is a very interesting insight. I'm not sure what to make of it exactly, but it, it seems to be anyway that humans do employ this, this mixture of egocentric and allocentric strategies that we can represent, you know, features outside of our own perspective and that there are certain people in the population who actually have, have an increased ability to do this and they have, you know, increased grey matter in the hippocampus, the, this activity in the hippocampus that accompanies allocentric strategies. I think that's right. One thing I would add is that um, the problem, we need to be careful to state it in a way that it's not just trivially true. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, if you think about, well, what is a perspective in the context of this claim? Like, can we represent things beyond our perspective? Well, what is a perspective? One way of thinking about a, what a perspective is, it's like it's the sum total of my assertoric representations. So all the things I believe and perceive and remember, all the representations I have like that, those are the, the assertoric ones, the ones that you could kind of think of as asserting something about the, the world. So if my perspective just is the sum total of my assertoric representations, then by definition, I couldn't represent anything outside of my perspective because any representation I have is just one of the representations in this sum total of representations and so that's all I can represent so that's just trivially true you can only represent what you can represent Mm -hmm. is all you're saying Um, so it needs to be a way of stating what the problem is so this is just not a a triviality um, either trivially true or trivially false maybe what what we mean by perspective is something like our sensorium that's what you mean by perspective and then the question now becomes this one that's more recognizable is the empiricist rationalist sort of thing that they were arguing about. Can you represent anything that beyond what you can sense Mm -hmm. or are there representations that have their content somehow above and beyond what we could have a sensory perception of or a sensation of now that's not, it's not trivially either true or false. It, it seems less hard, though, to, to to answer that question. Yeah, I like to break that question of perspective down into kind of two components. So I think you've touched on one there. It's kind of the the biology of the of the perspective. So the biology of the organism with the sensory motor system who's doing the perceiving. And then the other thing I think about is the geometry of the situation, which I think is much easier to talk about in objective terms. So geometrically, you have a certain vantage point. You know, cows look further away based on the distance and objects, the shape of an object, you know, has a different perspectival shape depending on where you are in the environment. And I think that's much easier to to get to get around because we can talk about that in almost mathematical terms. But the the biology problem is the more difficult one. I think it is the one that von Oechskull and the empiricists are getting at, that everything it's coming through sense data. Everything is coming through the fleshy eyes and the the fleshy brain of the mouse or the human or the the whatever, even an insect like a tick. Uh, and I think you, you have a great example in, in that paper with Andy Clark about selective representing and world making that, you know, there's there's almost this objective fact of egocentricity or an objective fact of subjectivity. You know, the, the very fact that we have differences in our brains that give rise to these differences in what we perceive, well, that already seems to presuppose and entail, you know, that there are brains and neurobiology to even give rise to these these differences. So if you want to respond to von Uxkull's kind of 
anti-realist empiricism, we can say, well, you know, if, if there are even these brains that give us all these different subjective experiences, well, then there needs to be a shared world in which these brains exist. There needs to be, you know, a, a mind independent world with neurobiology. So I thought that was quite a, a nice and, you know, neat argument to respond to von Oekskull and the other anti-realists. Thank you. Uh, it's been a long time since I read that that uh, paper with Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll take your word for it that that's what's in there. <laughs> I don't know if it's um, if it's mentioned in that paper or not, but there's a a commentary on Nagel's what it's like to be a bat that makes a very similar point to the one that you were just describing. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone familiar with the Nagel bat argument knows that it's posing this problem about objectivity and subjectivity and and perspectives and, and whether science could could ever give a, a fully illuminating account of consciousness, given that we, since we're not bats, in some sense, there's certain things we won't know about the bat. We won't know what it's like to be a bat. Only the, the bat is in a position to know what it's like to be a bat. So there's this paper by, I believe, the philosopher's named John Bureau, and he says something along the lines of like, look, the... The, the main problem only makes sense against some kind of background assumption of physicalism. And, and I'm sure Nagel is aware of this because Nagel himself isn't, isn't trying to draw an anti-physicalist or anti-realist conclusion. Um, but he is just trying to state a problem that comes up for the realist and the, and the physicalist. Uh, but, but nonetheless, Bureau comes along and says, like, look, at lest anyone be tempted towards anti-physicalism by this stuff, do keep in mind that the only reason you have for thinking that bat, that bats would have something it's like, is because of certain physical similarities between you and the bat, mm-hmm. and 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 the only reasons you think there might be some divergence between you and the bat has to do with physical differences between you and the bat. So it's physical stuff that's driving uh, our construction of this problem in the first place. You know, if if for example substance dualism were true, then why couldn't you read the mind of a bat? Mm-hmm. Why couldn't your non-physical mind connect to its non-physical mind, and and then you just like feel bat feelings? Why not? <laughs> um, but the physicalist is able to say things like, "Look, your your brain is not physically connected to a bat's brain. That's why you're cut off from bat experience because of these physical facts." Um, so I hear a similar kind of thought in in the way that you were describing that response to the uh, von Uxkull problem. That um, yeah, you would even you wouldn't even think there were these multiple points of view with these multiple uh, umwelts if you didn't already have this objectivist, physicalist picture in the background. Yeah, and I love that way of reconciling the existence of multiple umwelts and multiple multiple subjects because that's one of the fundamental problems that interested me at the start is you know how how do we account for a mind independent world as well as all of these different perspectives and different subjects. But I I think there's an interesting objection, which I think Nagel, or the commentary on Nagel might help with the objection, but I'd love to get your take, because I think it's a a challenging one, that maybe this argument is kind of already begging the question of realism. So if we say that, you know, there are differences in brains, therefore egocentricity, therefore brains must exist, we kind of need brains already as a premise to say there are differences between brains to give rise to egocentricity. So maybe this argument is you know, already begging the question of realism. It was nice that you mentioned substance dualism because maybe that's one way of showing that the opposite uh, presumption doesn't work. But I'm just wondering, 
can we convince an anti-realist using this argument? Because they mightn't necessarily accept the, this mind-independent worlds with differences in brains, that that's even the cause of egocentricity. Yeah, that's a good question. There's, um, I think we rapidly wind up in this territory where it's hard to know what anyone means by the main terms. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I, I think of when I think of people writing in the embodiment literature who seem to identify as anti-realists, I try to understand what they what they mean by that and how they conceive of the the whole debate. I kind of lose confidence that we're talking about the same things. Maybe we're talking past each other. What's important to me is that there was something before there were minds. I, you could argue about that, but I mostly take that as a given that, you know, so idealism, solipsism aren't, we're not even considering those as options. First, there was hydrogen. For, for a long time in the universe, it was just hydrogen. And it was a, only much, much later you had stars and then planets and then organisms and then nervous systems and then brains. And you don't get consciousness and mental representations until much later in the history of the universe. So there had to have been a bunch of mind-independent stuff first. I take that as just like not really up for, up for debate. There is a lot of our mental life where we are representing things other than hydrogen. We're representing things like, would this hat make me look too old? Or is it really worth like keeping this comic book from the 1980s? You know, so we're, we're thinking about things like attractiveness and value and whether something counts as a comic book or not, as opposed to just a bunch of paper. So there's all these things in our ontology. There's all these things that we represent, whereby at least for some of them, the anti-realists have a better account. The story you would tell about the representation of hydrogen just is not going to apply to your representation of, you know, whether someone is a hipster. <laughs> what does it mean to be a hipster? That's super context dependent, for super historical. It might mean something very different in 1990s Brooklyn versus like early 2000s Utrecht, um, right? There's going to, anti, the anti-realist is going to have the best uh, account of that. But I can't take seriously that anti-realism would be true about everything. Like in some real way, the hydrogen is just a construct. And if we hadn't constructed it, there wouldn't have been any hydrogen. Like, Seems arrogant. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, I do think that there's stuff in the natural sciences, the hard sciences, where there's some construction going on. Mm -hmm. You take, like a wonderful case is the case of the definition of planets. This is recent history for us. Pluto got defined out. Pluto's no longer a planet in the solar system. And um, and so then when it comes time to do cognitive science, you know, and we're, and we're interested in, in, in things like how does navigation work or, or how does memory work? Um, how do people remember things? How do people remember spatial locations? Is your story, your representational story, going to be more like the representational story for hydrogen as described by realists? Or is it going to be more like the, the representational story for, say, how we represent what counts as a hipster? The, the larger debate now is irrelevant. We've clarified things enough, so now we know what we mean when we say, like, anti-realism versus realism. Or when we talk about a representational scheme as being more like a detector 
versus a, a set of inferences propped up uh, by a bunch of cultural associations. Um, so that that's how I tend to think of this anti-realism, realism debate. And I have a hard time taking seriously the proposal that's all got to be one way versus the other. Although I, I do kind of sneak in. Ultimately, the foundation is what the objectivists or the realists say. That mm-hmm. It's hydrogen. <laughs> no, I do really agree. And I think it's so important to separate you know, the, the things we're realists about and the things that we're anti-realists about. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about philosophy of social sciences, I think, in, in recent months. And the replication crisis, of course, things seem, it seems like perhaps there isn't as much of a metaphysical regularity or an invariance that we can capture with the same degree of precision. So I, I'm coming to the position of maybe being an anti-realist about the objects of social science, because maybe the patterns in human behaviour are too dynamical and volatile. And when we measure them again, maybe they're going to be different. So maybe we shouldn't be necessarily realists about all of the objects of science in the same way. And equally, I'm an anti-realist about morality. And we, we recognize all the time that things like currencies and countries are mind dependent, as opposed to, you know, the, the physical things that exist in the world as being mind independent. So I think this is one task philosophy should and needs to do is sorting out these categories and, you know, yeah, not having a uh, the same answer across the board, but being a bit nitpicking about which categories are. Yeah. yeah. You know, when thinking about these sorts of like totalizing philosophical projects, like, for example, trying to give a fully representational theory of the mind or trying to give a fully naturalistic theory of reality, all those sorts of totalizing projects. One thing that I keep coming back to is this book by Mark Wilson called Wandering Significance. In which um, the main thing for me that's great about that book is all these examples from the physical sciences, material sciences, stuff about, you know, thinking about domes and the way the pressure is distributed across a dome or stuff about like um, the the dynamics of water as a boat is like cutting a path through some water. Or if you've got a water, a, a drop of water that is falling into a pool of water and and trying to have a mathematical model that'll predict the shape of the, the splash. And he's got all these examples where the science is just this patchwork of different mathematical theories, but there's no optimism about unifying them. So for example, in Wilson's discussion of the uh, distribution of forces in a dome, we've got a mathematical equation that allows us to think about the edge of the dome at the base and, and it's basically the same math you would use for thinking of a ring. So we're treating the edge as a ring. And then like towards the top of the dome, we've got a mathematical equation that will tell you how forces are distributed across this hemisphere. But of course the dome is the ring part and the hemisphere part. And there's this transitional area, but we don't have a, a mathematical way of dealing with the forces distributed across the whole dome. Or another example from Wilson if if you've got if you picture a drop of water going into a pool of water and then you've got this like finger of water that comes up and it separates into another glob of water that breaks off there's a mathematical model that will tell you exactly how that finger will form and how high up the finger will form but there's nothing that tells you when or why the glob breaks off and continues and he's got example after example after example of that in the book and the main picture that you get from that is there isn't going to be a single physical theory. 
a single reductive view of reality whereby all the sciences are unified and it all could just be this one equation that governs them all. There's just these patchworks. We are confident, nonetheless, that the dome is a physical thing and the, and it's, the dome is just made out of molecules. There's nothing more to it than that. Nonetheless, like there's these two different mathematical physical theories about the two different parts of the dome, and we've got no way of unifying them. We don't have a unified theory of, a dome, of domes, and we don't have a unified theory of water droplets. And he just has example after example after example of stuff like that. And um, so I always like keep in mind the kind of modesty that is, I think, the moral of that story that... Um, Maybe it always is just going to be a hodgepodge and we'll understand little chunks and we'll never have a big picture. You know, Wilfred Sellers has this line about philosophy as understanding in the general sense, how things hang together in the general sense. I think that's correct, but I also worry that it, that ultimately at the end we'll conclude that the answer is like shit happens. Like that's all you can say <laughs> is, uh, yeah, wow, that's, a, that's some crazy shit. The universe reality it's just like wow man there's a lot of stuff happening <laughs> and we can understand little bits of it in the little bit of time that we have and that's about it well it seems like a perfect place to end with some modesty and perhaps pessimism but you know realism about you know, what we can do with philosophy yeah modesty pessimism but i'm still i'm not going to stop <laughs> great just keep on rocking until i can't rock anymore keep that badass philosophy but this has been super fun yeah it's been great Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me. Great to hear your voice after reading your words. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Wonderful. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. And please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.